Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Bream. On today's review-only episode of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a discussion of two new releases. Uh, oh, wait, Alan, did you want to jump in there? or? Yeah, I did. I wanted to say hi, Tom. Oh. <laughs> That's allowed. Hello, Alan. Thank you. Um, That's all I have to say. <laughs> for a discussion of two new releases starring Israeli women whose characters brush aside the fatuous hindrances of patriarchy to realize miracles of female strength and ingenuity. The latest blockbuster comic book adaptation, Wonder Woman, and the Israeli romantic comedy, The Wedding Plan. Welcome again to the show, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for catching up with these movies and coming by. Thanks for uh, <laughs> making me go see them. Okay, so on the face of it, these movies seem like an unlikely pair to review side by side. Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins and starring Israeli actress, martial artist, model Gal Gadot, as the eponymous DC comic superheroine, is a $100 million action spectacle about an Amazon-trained warrior goddess, committed to peace, yet consistently embroiled in earth-shattering violence. And The Wedding Plan, directed by Rama Burstein and starring Noah Kaler, is a small Israeli romantic comedy about a religious Jewish woman named Mikal in her early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, who's grown tired of a decade of dating and decides to get married on the eighth night of Hanukkah, even though she does not yet have a groom. And yet, both movies are directed by women, starring women, featuring stories of women who thrive in traditionally male realms by turning potentially confining expectations in war and religious marriage into opportunities of stubborn resilience and hard-won respect. So, Alan, my question for you is, which of these female superstars did you find most compelling? And if you had to pick one person most likely to achieve the seemingly impossible, would you go with Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, or the soon-to-be-wed Michal and her traveling petting zoo. Oh, I'm totally with Michal. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I don't surprise you by saying that. Uh, I, I saw, I, I saw um, Wonder Woman, I guess, earlier in the weekend. Usually I have a kind of uh, afterglow when I see a movie. I think about it. Something sticks with me. I'll be surprised. Uh, some image will emerge when I'm doing something else. In spite of the incredible amount of action and the kind of ear-splitting and eye-opening stuff the movie provides, it was a total blank in the reverberations department. Whereas um, uh, the, um, uh, wedding plan, the wedding plan, uh, which is, by the way, uh, uh, their American version of what it is in Hebrew. I, I, I know a little Hebrew, so it was it was fun to watch it. The Hebrew name for the for the film is. Uh, let me see if we have any Hebrew listeners. La Avor Etakir, which means to break through the wall, which in fact is a phrase she uses. So the short answer is... Um, uh, You're going the, with Michal it's to, what, it's to achieve what, it's, the impossible? No, what did you say in your introduction, how you linked these two uh, in your, the, the very first line? I thought that this is interesting to talk about these movies, but... You, you you link them, but it's almost... Uh, what did you say about them? They both... Well, I've got characters who... Israeli right. women who play... So both of these actresses are right. Israeli. Right. Uh, who brush aside the fatuous hindrances of patriarchy to realize miracles of female strength. Yes, miracles of female strength. But... Yeah. But and the, that I mean that drives so well with I didn't know the literal Hebrew translation for uh, for the wedding plan, but you said to to break through right, a but, wall. But that but what's interesting apropos of the superhero is that that is not a, a wedding plan term. To break through the wall is a cabalistic term, mm. uh, and 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 uh, in in many ways she really she she really is a, a superhero um, because she but she's this, what's wonderful about this movie is. Um, 
is that it takes you inside this religious uh, sect. It's really the Hasidic sect that kind of worships the the Breslov uh, guy, Chaim of Bratslav. And she feels if she has enough faith, if she has superhuman faith, God will provide a groom. And that's the kind of superheroic she, and, and, and that she's performing. Um, but in fact, it's, it's uh, utterly uh, a realistic film and takes you deep in the heart of really the, a women's world. Um, and, uh, you know, I must say that what, what the comparison really to me brought to mind is some, some writing teacher of mine ages ago said, um, paraphrasing somebody, do you know the difference between drama and melodrama? Have we talked about this before? No, so no, no. The answer to the question on. is um, uh, melodrama takes what is extraordinary and makes it seem ordinary, whereas drama takes the ordinary and makes it seem extraordinary. <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful um, description for how, I think, for both of these two movies. I right. think that for The Wedding Plan, it falls pretty squarely in that ordinary rendered extraordinary, and maybe The Wonder Woman is a bit closer to the extraordinary rendered relatively banal but let's i mean for, for, so we are right. we are we are clearly on the wrong side of um of history and politics and contemporary movie culture in and, our thoughts and here. money and money in that and you know, no, I, I was talking with harry b- before i came in the show and uh wonder woman is a universally beloved movie and i think for a lot of great reasons i mean i there so wonder woman is the first uh comic book movie which has become by far the kind of biggest and most important hollywood genre over the past decade and a half it's the first comic movie to center on a woman in 12 years since i think Catwoman with halle berry and then there's a movie called electra uh also from about 12 years ago so that is the end since then we've had you know this onslaught of the iron man's the dc comics the the marvel uh studios movies some of them better than others all of them following relatively similar generic templates but to have none of them focus pretty exclusively on a female protagonist this is quite a breakthrough on top of that we have a female director um i think in the opening weekend and it's like 100 200 million whatever the box office was um this is the the most that a movie directed by a woman has ever garnered in the the opening box office so those achievements in terms of box office success i think are not i mean we're talking about movies which are always uh, these compromises between commerce and art and entertainment. So I think it is important to recognize that one measure of success for a movie is its box office appeal, and Wonder Woman is certainly succeeding there. Um, This is also a really, you know, it is a fun and funnily written movie i mean this there is a lot of you know a lot of critics have been comparing this to the kind of earlier screwball comedy style of writing where you have you know extended sequences between the chris pine and gal gadot characters where nothing is really furthering the plot but there's so much kind of sexual tension in the air between the two of them that you do get a sense of a spark. I mean, there's character development and not necessarily plot. And sometimes these movies are so weighed down by plot. It's just like constantly moving inexorably towards like fighting absolute evil. It was nice that this movie took a few times, you know, just to, you know, I don't remember that sequence where he emerges from the hot tub and they talk about how he is an above average man or they're lying on a boat as they're sailing back into like the humanly world. And they're talking about how, uh, you know, she as a, as a goddess has read all twelve volumes on like the nature of humanly pleasure. Well, but, that, that I mean, that, so that, so those bits of banter right. I find refreshing in the context of a comic book movie, 
But it doesn't make me appreciate the genre of comic book movies no, anymore because no. they always catapult towards, again, being a prologue for the next example of the expanded universe of DC Comics. Everything is building up to what we're going to spend money on next time. And then always these you know, massive action sequences where you defeat absolute evil only to be confronted next time with another incarnation of absolute evil. It's, right. It's the, very, it's the very definition of what is not a good plot. Uh, it's 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 not uh, upping the ante. It's repetition. And but but you're right uh, to 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 th- those are all nice achievements that you uh, enumerated, including the business of um, the banter and uh, uh, and that kind of stuff, as opposed to just racing even faster. And I want to say that we are two sequence. men, two men talking about two exclusively female movies. We are going to fail in providing a female perspective on this so however many times i say this is not a feminist picture i recognize that i'm i'm a dude commenting upon this so listeners well, thank wait, you for your forbearance i take a little exception to that we all have some female in us and all females have some male <laughs> in us and um you know i would say for example i i think that what you described as the the movies one of the movies um uh uh stars that are merits that we can give it as opposed to demerits is that it does it does take a little more time for the characters to interact and to banter and to be uh you know uh, uh striving to be a beatrice to benedict you know um but and, and that reflects i think uh, the fact that you have a you have a woman directing it and uh, being in charge of it she takes the time before they rush off to the next uh impossible physical um feat but you know, let let's be honest. Most of the press about this is reviewing the box office. They're not reviewing the issues of narrative and stuff like that. They're all, and even Jill Lepore, you know, the world's expert on the Wonder Woman, who wrote the book on that, she said, you know, it was a kind of grudging. You know, forgive me. Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I real. I have to say, I like this, even though it's a little weird that I'm watching two hours this woman putting on a tiara and thigh high boots and you know beating the crap out of guys for two hours. I mean, she knows what it is. So the the Wonder Wonder Woman is, it's a two and a half hour movie. So it, it's a movie that, that fits the, again, I mean, this is, this is how these comic book movies work, right? And any major, you look at any major summer blockbuster, they tend, they're bloated in every single like version of that word. And so the first third of this movie takes place on this uh, kind of magical, lush idyllic island where amazonian women train in martial arts and there's certainly a lot of intensity and ferocity there but there's no violence in the way that we experience it a bit later on in the movie in the trenches of uh of the western front in in belgium but you know i why do they they do why why do they set it why does it have to be in world war one with the bad germans I don't understand I think, that choice I think, either. I think it's one more way. Could of, be anywhere, anytime. Well, I think it's one more way of having this movie function as a prelude to the next episode. I mean, if if we in our kind of high level understanding of history know that World War One is a harbinger for for World War Two, I think it's one more way of setting up. Here, we're going to have an even more dramatic confrontation when we have Wonder Woman combat the Nazis in the next episode. Here, so, we get to start off with uh, with the Kaiser's goons. I know, and, and and you know, uh, I was going to ask you what your favorite portion of the movie is. For me, the the, the movie totally shifts. Uh, uh, well, it shifts this location from this uh, mythological island where uh, here comes the male perspective. Why do these Amazons have two breasts and not one? I thought the Am- Amazons were supposed to have one breast so they could pull back the bow without you know uh, interference. 
So I, I don't get that. I don't don't have a well. Where's the a, continuity an girl to, to help us with this? <laughs> right. So we can confirm that the Amazonians are two-breasted in this, how, however mythologically inaccurate they may be. But again, I mean, for that, I think that opening section is also heralded as you know we are bombarded with images of these kind of super masculine superheroes of the past decade and a half where we have you know these men beating the crap out of each other and you know dressed to the nines and all of this armor and whatnot and here we have a, a female analog that on the face of it presents a refreshing new like feminine perspective on what a comic book hero and an all-female kind of universe of superheroes could look like but I find that a completely unsatisfying um, approach to mixing up what comic book movies offer. In that, if you just put women in the exact same roles as men and they're doing the exact same thing with the exact same kind of violent and frenetic maneuvers, except they happen to be women instead of men, yeah, I get that that's an achievement in terms of representation, but I don't what, think what, that it changes our perspective on the, on the violence, violence or, the or, these what's movies. The, what's the value added from the so-called feminist perspective? Yeah. So, so they chit-chat before she beats the crap out of people. That's, that, what, is, that, is, that the, um, is that part of it? Um, uh you know, cer- certainly the presentation of the all-female Amazonian society is quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. But you know, w- once in once in New York, I went to review an all-female Macbeth. That was, and it was done by a company that said, I think basically what the what the creators of Wonder Woman said, like we can do this too. So they had these women. Everybody was a woman from Duncan to Macbeth, and they. And they were doing high fives and chest thumping and beating the crap out of each other. And it was kind of interesting to watch because it was different. But uh, I, I really, I struggle to find the value added in terms of the story or uh, apart from the kind of um, political feminist point that was being made. So the big kind of value add that I thought worked really well within the context of the movie and also as I thought outside of the context of the movie and thought about how is this representation of women kind of furthering some sort of conversation around uh, like gender equality in in the real world. And that is a trope that recurs a number of times throughout the movie, which is whenever a man, usually the Chris Pine uh, kind of male pilot hero character, turns to Wonder Woman and says, hold on a second, I have to handle this, I'll be right back, I just have to deal with these guys in Parliament, or I have to deal with these soldiers in the trench, just stay right there, and I'll be right back. How I thought those conver- how I thought those scenes were going to end up would be Wonder Woman either waiting for a second, and then we cut to the next scene, and then we see him back. I didn't think that was likely. What I thought really was going to happen was Wonder Woman would kind of make an argument for why she deserved to be you know, in that room, in Parliament, fighting alongside Chris Pine. But no, this is a you know a fish. This is a fish out of water story where she is not accustomed to the social conventions of World War One era London. She doesn't argue for her right to be there. She just kind of pushes aside whoever's in her way and says, "I'm Wonder Woman. I, in fact, am deserving to be in this room, and it's not a matter of debate right now. I'm just going to put myself right there." That I found quite refreshing, and that happened a number of times where she there's no debate as to whether or not a woman deserves to be in the decision making room, but rather. Her just thrusting herself to the front because, after all, she is Wonder Woman. She is the most qualified to be handling any of these conversations uh, and actions around how to protect the whatever army is in need of protection at the time. But but one of, but one of the questions that I've uh, that I've not seen discussed in any of the reviews, but then again, the reviews, uh, as as I mentioned, really don't talk about the 
the issues of narrative and the and much about the the storyline is that in many ways the the true moment of heroism in this movie, despite uh, Wonder Woman's incredible bracelets that repel bullets, I mean, the true moment of heroism belongs to the man. Because the Chris Pine character, the pilot, uh, is you know flying this airplane full of all this uh, toxic gas, um, and the only way it can be disposed of uh, without harming uh, humanity, which the, the, you know, Wonder Woman is supposed to save, is if it's exploded uh, selflessly in which he kills himself up in the sky. He does that. And, and um, now, is that a female virtue that happens to be embodied in Chris Pine? Well, or, is it, or is it just, it's, it strikes me as just a, um, you know, it's, the, it's the, a, a soldier do, doing his uh, ultimate duty. I don't think we have to equate heroism with uh, kind of mortal self-sacrifice explicitly. I mean, yeah, that... You know, this is an interesting problem that all, I guess, superhero movies face is that most of these heroes and heroines are immortal or nearly indestructible in some way. So for them to offer their bodies for kind of complete annihilation, kind of be impossible for, for Wonder Woman to do in the exact same way. I think that she demonstrates quite a bit. I mean, certainly throughout, she demonstrates this incredible uh, courage and and ability on the battlefield. Um, but I think when she decides to leave the, you know, the magical island for the real world, yeah, it's motivated by a kind of fantastical um, anticipation of what she will find and what she'll be able to do. But I think that takes quite a bit of heroism, if, you know, courage and heroism to leave an area of relative, like, peace and repose to to throw yourself into one of pretty intense conflict and danger. Well, she wants to save humanity. She she, I guess that makes her different from the uh, the other Amazons. She has a kind of a social justice agenda right. in her genes. She feels like a moral imperative to to realize. You know, this is an, another interesting kind of contradiction within Wonder Woman. She is quite explicitly a um, a woman, a like weapon for peace, right? And yet, all she does and all she seems to be surrounded by is incredible violence well she yeah she needs havoc right that, that's that's the problem the other issue is is i guess it, this must be for all uh, i don't know the genre very well that's uh you know full disclosure but as you hinted at a moment ago uh if she's immortal and it turns out that she is the daughter of zeus we find out in the end which makes her uh i guess fully uh immortal then what's What's to worry about? There's no vulnerability. It's not like uh, what's his name Hector, where you could get him on this on the plains of Troy, if because because his he had he did have a vulnerable human part for the arrow to hit his heel. Sure. But what's to get at? Uh, the only thing that seems to bother her is uh, possibility of sex with a human or something. Which, um, but she has no um, she in in her fighting with Ares, uh, the 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 ultimate. I mean. I thought there was real sexual chemistry between these guys. I thought that was a a part of the... I mean, considering how poorly um, kind of romantic relationships movies, these comic movies tend to get, maybe outside of Iron Man and and, uh, uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow character in that series, I think these movies tend to miss any type of spark between any character at all. There was some here. It was a little bit. You know what it reminded (laughs) me of in a very pale form, but it reminded me a bit of... uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the film, but Greta Garbo plays a communist agent who comes to Paris. Oh, uh, is it Nanachka? Is it Nanachka? And she is totally, you know, she in, she shows up wearing just plain brown garb and is uninterested in love. But she, and you know, she hangs out with her comrades. But Melvin Douglas, who has to show her around, 
you know, it's it's as if they're um, they're translating words. They they're from different planets, and there is some of that interesting tension with when when, when people um, cross the divide with each other slowly. That's true. You know, we we recently spoke about a movie called Their Finest, which I think we were both quite a big quite big fans of about the female screenwriters in the Ministry of Information in right. World War II. And I think right. that is uh, a much more, also, you know, a movie directed by a woman, Lone Cherific, about a female protagonist. And I think the way that we see the female screenwriters influence on the development of the female characters in her movie is much more of a testament to what a kind of more kind of feminine or alternative perspective on what a war movie could be like. Uh, than what we see here in in Wonder Woman, right? It's as if, it's as if the female director says, "I'm going to jump into this all male, uh, uh, you know, testosterone juiced up, and I'm going to show female testosterone, so to speak." And which it, takes a lot of hutzpah. which, which I mean, is that's nice, ambitious. which is nice. Um, but you know, um, once you show you can do it, uh, I think it's going to be a challenge to keep this interesting as they go forward. Um. Can we just spend one second more on the visual like strategy of this movie? Because I think that it played a very important role in my ultimate fatigue with it. And <laughs> and that's in that you we call are... You visual strategy? <laughs> so th- I found, I mean, this is, I think, quite common to comic book movies. It's, and I think harking back to how these characters are depicted in actual comic books, in that Wonder Woman is constantly presented in the most iconic of poses, right? She is flying towards the camera. She is landing with one knee on the ground and uh, a, another foot planted firmly. I feel like it was a series of like two and a half hours of these very muscular, impressive poses and not necessarily, you know, there there's like an, an odd staticness to someone who can fly and, and can who, who can move so freely. And I think that that is a, a drawback of movies that are so um, faithful to comic book style representations of characters where you are getting individual frames on the page. And just to be constantly kind of freeze framed on, um, on these poses that are meant to be impressive, I found kind of like beautiful to look at at points, but very distracting in terms of my understanding of a character moving in space and interacting with people. Well, I would say more, even more than distracting, I think it, I think it undermines the, the, the uh, sequences in the film when she's not iconic and like a god standing on roads. I mean, when she, you know, when, when she strides through Parliament or whatever wearing her gown, it's like you're looking at her and it doesn't fit on her because you, you look at her and you think of her in her, um, in her mythological suit. But I'll tell you, the thing that really confused me, and maybe because I came to this without the background of the story, is that the opening sequences have her at a, at a job at the Louvre. I mean, you open up with the Louvre, at the pyramids, and she is, um, you know, we we don't get very much here, but you're, she, we find out with a similar, like, 30-second scene at the end, she's apparently an antiquities curator, and, you know, seeing a photograph taken during the narrative of the movie it's be, it's being brought to her and that triggers the, the the whole movie in a sense is a, it's in recollection but are we supposed to take from this that she's living among us as a curator sort of like clark kent which i would have loved i would have loved his or, or the batman uh the, you know one i guess that's not part of the uh this particular genre but it would have been wonderful for her to be 
in real life and how she would conduct herself, but we, we never see her. Instead, she's just preserved in this beautiful art museum in the way that other, you know, monumental achievements of exactly. human creativity are. Exactly. And of, you know, it, of beauty, it, she's just kind of confined in this back room office at the Louvre. It seemed like a phony frame, yeah. uh, to, you know, totally. And uh, uh, I don't, and uh, yeah, anyway. Well, let's, you know, I, I want to, let's get on to the movie that we did like. Um, you know, not that, listeners, not that we hated Wonder Woman, but I think, you know, for a movie that has received pretty universal acclaim, I think it's good to offer a uh, a counter perspective to to that um, to that applause. But uh, first, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Alan Appel about two new summer releases now playing at the movie theater in downtown New Haven. Uh, so about women and and by women and about women and by women. Now the one we're going to talk about next is again. You know I tend to be pretty apprehensive going into comic book movies. Um, I know that it's a genre that I'm not crazy about. I don't know much about. You know, I was never too big of a comic book fan. So it kind of, it always has to win me over. The exact same is true of romantic comedies. I like romantic comedies, but it's not a genre that I seek out. Not when I feel particularly, particular affinity for. Um, and yet the wedding plan, and let alone kind of marriage, you know, farces and romantic comedies. Um, this one really did, win me over um really from the very start and i think it is because in the the very first scene of this movie we get so much communicated about the character through action and that thing about so we open and the character and her world and her world we see this woman in her late 20s early 30s who goes to i'm not sure uh, what role the woman that she visits in, in the opening scene? She, she's, a, is, she's a matchmaker. Is she a matchmaker? She's, she's a kind of like a soothsayer. I mean, she's offering these more. She's kind of reading the tea leaves for her, um, as opposed to putting her in touch with any. Maybe she's putting her in touch with with men later on. She definitely is part of the matchmaking process. But there's no man at this meeting, right? She's no. She, well, except except well, her son, who she will <laughs> who ultimately marry. But but no, you're right. This is but not it, a. T- she, she the first thing she does is she comes in and. And uh, she's forced to knead dough and to punch dough. And what do we see? We see her just wailing against this dough. To... She's, she's like a therapist for women who can't find husbands. An Orthodox <laughs> right. Jewish uh, occupational therapist or something to get it out of her system. And then she sits... She sits... Uh, oh, wait, but before she says, I want to say that. So she's, she's beating against this dough. She's about to talk to a woman who's going to help her, you know, find a match so that she can no longer be in her early 30s and unmarried. Um, and... Uh, she, when she's told to pack up a piece of dough and put it to the side, she offers a very like brief, quiet prayer um, at putting aside the food. So in that, in about thirty seconds, we find out this is a woman with a lot of pent up aggression, and also a uh, a religious woman, I mean, very a woman real, who very- is going to. Uh, I mean, I, I love that we're not told that you are a religious, angry woman. Instead, we see her pray, and we see her beat up the dough. And you, and you don't know quite what these rituals mean. It, 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 it's, it's not, and it's not a. Even for those who kind of know this world, it is, as you indicate, strange because after she needs the dough, the next uh, rite uh, or sequence that the uh, matchmaker older woman makes her go through is to sit down between the, and, the, and between them and a very small table is some stinking fish. And then the matchmaker or soothsayer or marriage broker or woman um, kind of a using these are magical qualities mystical things she takes some of the blood of the fish or something like that or some some um uh, material from the fish and and puts it on her face 
and e- even though the woman, you know, our, our heroine resists because uh, the fish stinks, she does it, and then it's wiped off. And But anyway, what it establishes is that she's willing to do almost anything to change her status. But it's also, I mean, it demonstrates, again, getting to how she, you know, her religious faith is communicating that opening scene. It gets to her, her willingness to do anything, but also her faith in, in kind of mystical and obscure processes to, to further what she sees as her fate. Right? That's she's, right. She's yeah. not even, I mean, her argument throughout, the, so this is a woman who's constantly trying to get married. Her argument is not that she wants to be married or that she has to be married. It's kind of like, my life is one in which I am married. And I think that to think of how central like marriage is and family life is in the world of religious Judaism, uh, I found that quite poignant that it wasn't a matter of choice, really. And, you know, she is not choosing to get married at a certain point. She knows that she has to get married. Like, this is a, a but, critical, uh, necessary part of her existence. But, and, w- w- but one of the triumphs of the movie is that it's not, it, it's, it's both... A- it's both a critique of that world, but it's also uh, a loving embrace of that world, which I think is the point of view of the character. You know, Tom, I think one of the reasons why your trepidation about um, romantic comedy was uh, was not fulfilled is it's really not a romantic comedy. It's, it, you know, it's a kind of comedy of religious manners in a way. And actually, we were talking as um, as we were getting ready for the show about the, uh, if you or I think differently about a movie if we're going to write about it as opposed to talk about it. And so I came up actually with the, with the lead that I would have used for this movie if I were writing a review of it, and it goes like this. If Jane Austen had been a Breslover Hasidic woman, she would have written this story. <laughs> I think that is right on. It's totally <laughs> Jane Austen-y. And um, because we get to learn all about this girl's sisters and their marriage hopes. I mean, I, I, if this movie weren't inspired by Jane Austen, if one interviewed... Uh, 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 Berstein, the the woman who I think wrote it and directed it, I'd be shocked. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you are totally. I think you're right on in making that comparison, and in particular in what I found to be the strongest parts of otherwise quite a strong movie were the dating sequences. Wow. Instead of a, a, a montage of kind of silly and farcical interactions with lampoonable people, here we have again definitely satirical commentary upon the structure in which these people are trying to meet right the the forced interactions but also all of the different ticks and all the different again going back to the opening scene where she puts her faith in having like fish blood splattered upon her face is somehow helping her find a marriage i love each different potential groom's take on what they think will lead to a successful marriage well and that in fact is the is the structure of the of of the movie and uh, it's like a charm bracelet of different sort of jade date moments. Do you, do you I have mean, a favorite one, among the? Yes, I do. I I do. Um, when when a, a, a Japanese guy, a recent convert, shows up and opens the door, and she looks at him, and she says nothing, and he says nothing, and the camera goes back and forth, and there's nothing to say. <laughs> so I guess. So and then there's a deaf guy, right? Who's who's uh, who? Um, and then what a poignant scene that can we set, can we dwell on that one in particular for oh, a second? Always because poignant. she's so she is set up with a another man who you know through this matchmaking service. He's deaf. I think he's a, a psychologist for the deaf. I think that's what he identifies his profession as. But he has his interpreter or signer um, sitting next to him at this dinner table, and there. You know, they're bantering, they're laughing, they're having a good time. Um, and he, the deaf man, asks her why she decided to meet up with him now. 
And she answers honestly, because this is a woman who, if anything, you know, values honesty above all else. <laughs> Even when she's not being honest with herself or with those, like which, she, is, which is an Austin characteristic. Right. She, right. she knows right. that a relationship for her cannot be based. And this is, I think gets to, you know, what is a um, admirable, maybe feminist quality or implication of this movie in that the fundamental assumption that this woman has in this movie has is that a relationship has to be founded upon mutual respect and honesty. And you know that if you are relying upon a religious superstructure, a social superstructure, or, you know, any kind of magical ticks, that's not going to lead to um, anything more than kind of infatuation or happenstance. Um, but so she answers honestly, right? She says, I thought it would be too difficult to be with a man who is deaf. And we don't even need to hear the response, right? We just see him sign, and then we see his his interpreter slightly shake his head so as not to have to communicate what he just signed at her. Right, and, and, and it's and heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, and it, what's wonderful is that she believes uh, uh, that she is going to have someone there. She believes it so much that, and not that she isn't disappointed and worried, uh, but t- to me, one of the most fascinating moments of the movie is when she actually gets on an airplane. She only has about three weeks from the time she makes this announcement, which kind of makes her whole world uh, rock and they're amused with what she's doing. But she goes to the shrine of um, Nachman of Bratslav, the kind of um, uh, godfather of her sect or whatever whatever it is, the founder of the sect in what today's Ukraine. And you know, she throws herself along with these other uh, totally devoted religious women against um, a kind of a screen. And it's a moment of despair. Right? Total she despair. says that she has lost her faith at this moment. She's lost any chance of, you know, hoping to find a partner. And she's at, you know, she's at this religious monument. And yet she is totally, you know, uncertain about every single aspect of her identity that she was trying right. to construct and then that what happens what the, the despair has brought her to this point where she she's sort of mumbling and talking to god it's a very religious moment and she hears a voice coming across the other way and it's a man's voice and it turns out it's a guy she knows who's a who's a totally secular guy i guess she knew him when before she got no religious. no no she didn't she didn't know him this is a this is the guy who's singing on the tv in the opening scene he's a pop star but he but they know each other from school or something i don't think so i think he, she just knows him for his music she's like a big fan of listening to this guy on the radio i i don't think they and, and, this and, could be a different interpretation but i think that she is so she's confronted it's like if you ran into you know a rihanna or something or at justin but you know someone who like a pop star who you listen to on the radio and then right. all of a sudden he's making overtures to you he's making overtures to her because she tells him as she tells everybody else that i'm going to be married and this is the time eighth day of hanukkah and this is the address and he looks at her and with a kind of intensity and uh, he says i'll marry you and she says you're just trying to say that so you can tell your pals you go to bed with a religious chick but in fact, this is a very intense moment because he's challenging her values for a moment we think and she thinks that, or he thinks she thinks, that uh, if she just breaks out of the religious world, this might be her true beloved. Talk about an Austin-like moment of wow. social and religious commentary where wow. she is unable to see him as an individual and only interprets him as a challenge to her faith. That's right. He, she is a te- he is a test of how devout she is and she squanders now she ends up fine because of the nature of the you know structure of the genre but 
she completely blows what now maybe that would have been the a, a short lived it, it could have been or it could have been the truest of true loves but i think the point is that she she disposes of it because of her religious commitment world. to this religious world that's right so th- this movie is at the same time a critique uh, and the uh, and, a, and a kind of um uh gentle expose of the limitations of this world but also the um um the comforts that it provides because she's never alone her her worry is always uh, it's always with her sisters and um, what we haven't told listeners is that what her profession is and it provides so many of the wonderful uh, moments she she runs a petting zoo a mobile petting zoo right? Mich- Michali's <laughs> petting zoo and she runs around in this little tiny van with a snake right. and a I'm rabbit. not sure what the market is like for that I guess she plays a lot of. <laughs> 10-year-old birthday party. <laughs> She's got a lot of gigs with Orthodox oh. Jewish girls. And- but again, what religious tension in that scene where she is showing the, off this, you know, the snakes, where the very re- symbolic The animals, religious school right? marm will yeah. not let one of her girls touch the snake because... Uh, it's unseemly for it's a unseemly. delicate woman. To yeah, do. and if it comes out uh, that she's touched a snake, which I guess might have some bad uh, religious, uh, you know, Eve and all, you know. Oh, and I think quite explicit sexual significance too, right? Right. You don't want any girls kind of tainted by a sexual encounter. See, the more we talk about this, the more this movie opens up. um, It's um, And she's totally comfortable. I mean, talk about counter to what maybe the religious strictures may require. She's totally comfortable around these animals, right? She has no reservations about right. being undone or, well, right. maybe a little later on, right. she thinks maybe and, this is hurting my marriage eligibility. But And the the screenwriter and the director convey that, as they often do in this movie, by, by Michali looking at the, um, the more uh, traditional school teacher who didn't allow the student to touch the snake, and they stare at each other. And both women know exactly what's going on here that that um here we are in this world and um you, you know we're going to st- it, it's it, it's as if they uh, uh understand and appreciate their limitations as well as why they're there uh, and you know so much is conveyed without words so i i brought up the visual strategy of wonder woman and i want to make sure to bring it up here too because you don't need to be a hundred million dollar blockbuster in order to have a kind of coherent visual approach to telling a story and i think that you know this is a good point to bring up a movie that both of us loved from two years ago called get the story of vivian anselm uh which was another very small israeli movie about a moroccan sephardic couple seeking a divorce in an orthodox court uh, in in Israel, and the trajectory of that protagonist is kind of the opposite of what we see here, in that she is moving further and further away from her kind of religious devotion, and that is bringing her towards a position of independence. I mean, she's equally independent as the character here, but she's moving away from her religion, and also she is um, pushing back constantly against a very kind of rigid legal system. But, but, but- what that movie does is that it we fo- I don't know if you remember how claustrophobic the close-ups are in that movie, yes. but we are constantly presented with these shot-reverse shot, looking at a face, then uh, you know filling up the entire frame, and then another face, an oppositional face, filling up the frame again. I found we were presented with a lot of close-ups here, too, in that we open with a close-up of the back of her head. We know that this is going to be a story kind of closely confined within the inner workings of this woman's head. But every single dinner table interaction, once we start getting into the moments of tension, it's like 
shot, 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 right? It's, it's just we're burrowing into the face of the characters who are almost competing to see who can uh, put the other into a position of subservience or who can, who can force the other into one of uh, kind of relenting on a gender equality. It's a one that really, you know, this is not just in one courtroom or not just in one room. The setting is much more expansive. You mean in, 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 um, in, in the wedding plan? In the wedding plan. But I did but, find but, us confined to faces in a way that I found well, really well, helpful. Well, you're absolutely right. I think, the, I think the structure is utterly the same in the divorce. It's one courtroom scene after another courtroom scene. And in this movie, uh, it's a charm bracelet of scenes with uh, dating, the two people confronting each other. And I was just listening to how you described the back and forth in conversation. And, and that's another way to get the kind of think about what makes drama. There is the back and forth of this conversation and who's up at the moment and who's down, who has been witty and who has been insightful. It's conversation as contest. It's conversation as combat in contest mm-hmm. that it's every bit is gripping, more gripping than what Wonder Woman is up to. And the, you know, thousands of people dying. You know, of course, I, I don't know if Wonder Woman is consciously making a comment upon the the meaningless suffering of war, but we certainly get presented with lots of lives meaninglessly lost uh, on the battlefield. And you know, it's true to the experience of World War One. so I don't want to discount that as um, misplaced or inaccurate. Right. But but, it, he, but here what's lost, uh, you know, the, the, the thousands of things that are, are lost in these kinds of conversations is might have beens did they say the right thing what uh, where are they uh, I, I mean uh, the, the conversation when people want something from each other is the essence of what plot is and who's up and who's down and uh, plot and character I mean talk about a tight narrative structure versus oh. one that just balloons um, I want to make sure to ask you about the ending of the wedding plan too and what you thought of that because if we had a very kind of controlled deliberative tense structure throughout the wedding plan of these contesting conversations I think one thing that I found myself very resi- resistant to with the genre of romantic comedy however well this movie falls within it is the kind of saccharine resolutions uh, in that inevitably you end up with the person who is in fact you know your life partner and meant to make you happy and and all of the drama was just pretext to this eternity of bliss that you get to look forward to I don't think that that's the case here but we also it's not an unsatisfying ending in that regard I mean she does end up I found there was quite a bit of suspense at the wedding you know I didn't know who was going to show up and and take her away but but you knew you knew somebody but you knew was going to show. Was, was that something? I mean, is that a generic uh, quality that you appreciate in this type of drama, or did you did you not see it coming? I don't know. What what? How did you respond to that ending? Well, you know, I I, I thought I was in the midst of uh, um, like a wonderful situation. You know, absolutely one and and um, I, what a great ride. And uh, I'm you know you're one of the movie's achievements is that you're rooting for this woman so hard. Everybody's rooting for her, but you especially are. Even though she's in the wrong so many times, right? She's not a flawless right, or faultless the, person. No, right, but she has faith in it in, and, and, and she doesn't, and she's not, um, she doesn't wear it on her sleeve. It's, it's, it's a true faith. Uh, I was actually, you know, because I have a secular perspective, I was, uh, I was thinking that she might run off with the musician. Uh, and actually I thought he might show up at, at the end. But it would. But the more I thought about it, I realized that the by the ter- by the movie's terms and the character's own perspective, the 
the groom who's going to show up had to be within her world. And it was really a kind of, um, what is it, the shock of the inevitable, uh, because we she met this guy in the opening scene. She, the guy is the son of the, uh, the, the woman matchmaker. And, um, he is recommended to her that when she does find her husband, he can give her a good discount on the hall that he operates. So it was planted and it was harvested. And talk about an effective closing shot. I mean, I, if I knew that there was going to be some satisfying romantic resolution, I had no idea that the final shot we would see of this woman is her. I mean, for the most part, we've seen her, you know, her, her head isn't covered, right? She is dressed in a relatively like independent contemporary fashion. She, she doesn't, even though she, she prays frequently, there were little indicators to me that this is someone who is a very devout person. Now, maybe someone more familiar with that world would be able to pick up on little signs, but she looked like anyone else, uh, in you know, regardless of where they fell on the religious spectrum to me. But at the end, we see her all, I mean, she she's she's so covered up at the end, right? She's wearing this this kind of red headscarf that completely obscures this big shock of curly brown hair that she has. She has on these traditional earrings and makeup and it's a very. I found it a, a very interesting and odd um, kind of contrast with how we were presented with this kind of ferociously independent woman throughout the movie, and now at her moment of kind of deepest self satisfaction, she is most engulfed by the um, the religious world that she wants to be a part of. It, it was. I found it. it dissonance implies that it didn't work for me. It really did work for me, but I found it an interesting contrast. Yeah, no, I, 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 this movie is full of fascination. I mean, wh- how are the men portrayed? I mean, in many ways, these women are kind of Amazonians of the of, of the Hasidic world in their own way. All the men are there for is you got to marry a man. That's the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not particularly wonderful. And in fact, the one time where we have a rabbi uh, who's called in to kind of arbitrate, this guy is this guy is like the character in um, the Cone Brothers, a serious man. He's a schlump. He sits there. He's nervous. He spends more time looking at his nails than looking he, at. Either. He's useless. Um, and it, the movie seems to suggest that you know men are there, and you're supposed to marry them because it's in the Torah that you're supposed to produce children. Uh, but they're they they really are. Um, they're not particularly attractive. They're not particularly useful. They're just sort of part of the furniture of their world the i saw that so this movie's playing in the very small kind of side room theater at the criterion and i was i was the only so there were only three people in the in the screening including me but the other two were a a young couple speaking hebrew and Mm -hmm. i thought how wonderful that that you know people in this i know that i'm not sure if they're israeli or if they live in new haven um but it was wonderful to think this is an opportunity for people in the city to connect a bit more with the culture that they don't often see represented in the movies and to have such a well-made and satisfying movie as a result. I thought that was quite an accomplishment. But any final words on the way? It sounds like we, we both are on the same page on these movies. Well, I, I think this is one of the situations where uh, the, 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 um, the seeing the both movies together really um, uh, you know, increased the pleasure. That it doesn't always happen, but thank you for that. Thank you for coming on the show and for chatting about these, Alan. And we will talk with you next week, another episode on another episode of Deep Focus. To find a complete archive of uh, almost two years of shows, go to deepfocusradio.com. But yeah, we'll catch up with you next Thursday at noon. Thank you.